Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based medical podcast offering local content for local clinicians. I'm your host, Alyssa Hathaway. I'm a local GP and family planning clinician and head of James Cook University's clinical school here in Mackay on Yui Country. This collaborative podcasting project between Mackay Hospital and Health Service, local clinicians and JCU will bring you a different topic and guest in each episode. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this nation, their contribution to healthcare and the traditional owners of the lands on which we practice. In this episode, Dr Stephen Lambert talks to me, Alyssa Hathley, about some common pitfalls with intrauterine devices and answering some common questions. So good morning, Alyssa. Just in general, in terms of women's health, I know as a male GP, it's probably uh, an area where I'm probably giving okay care, maybe a standard of care, but good quality health care. What's been your experience of, of, of good quality health care, particularly when it comes to um, sexual health, contraception, women's health? Yeah, we are really behind the eight ball. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, quality sex education in the schools. We don't have good uh, respectful relationships counselling. A lot of schools don't have any respectful relationships counselling or a lot of sex education at all, maybe as part of a health class. So the general health literacy in the area is poor. And when I talk to young people particularly, they are getting poor advice from their parents, even if they are bold enough to ask their mums and dads, because the mums and dads didn't have good quality advice. So if we can do better, that would be great for the community. Uh, Sex education, uh, contraception counselling, emergency contraception counselling, all of those things are not rocket science, but I certainly don't expect every GP to be as good at every aspect of medicine as every other. And certainly for the junior doctors who might be seeing women in emergency with an unplanned pregnancy or a threatened miscarriage or who have just popped an IUD in, having a good idea about uh, some of those skills that are needed with those patients is really important. It makes it easier for the doctor and much nicer for the patient. I think today we're going to be talking about contraception. I'm imagining contraception is an area where, um, you know, we're talking about the public in Mackay um, probably feel like they've got a lot of information about. You know, you would have talked to your mum, you would have got stuff in schools, that kind of thing. What I'm hearing you sort of say is there's there's an opportunity for doctors across the board. You may not be practicing this type of medicine every day uh, in the same way that you are, but there's a role for all health practitioners, doctors, uh, you know, GPs, interns, junior docs to be... Um, where the opportunity presents itself to uh, be uh, increasing the literacy, That's health right. literacy. Yeah. That's right. So, for example, I just saw a young woman for an intrauterine device insertion on Friday. She had a six-week-old baby. The last time I saw this young woman, I inserted an IUD. And I said to her, what happened to the IUD that I put in? And she said, oh, my GP took it out because I have endometriosis and PCOS. And the GP reassured me that I wouldn't fall pregnant. And that GP, I'm sure, wasn't doing what they thought was wrong, but it has made an enormous impact on this young woman's life that can't be underestimated. And, and maybe that'd be helpful for today's conversation is um, exploring some scenarios, some comments of scenarios, particularly in the general practice environment, probably the patients I'm seeing where yeah. I'm not doing women's health 
every day or providing contraceptive advice, but I guess there is a body of knowledge that I would need to deliver a high standard of safe quality care. Um, certainly when I was in medical school, the oral contraceptive pill was what we focused most of the time on. Copper IUDs were around. Um, it was kind of like, oh yeah, there's this thing. That, that, that was the limit of knowledge. And then I think, you know, long acting, um, reversible contraceptives, our likes, have probably come to the fore in the last, I don't know, sort of five, ten years? Five yeah, years. so women or doctors like me have been banging on about larks for a long time. Uh, so hopefully that message is really starting to filter out into the medical community. A long-acting reversible contraceptive is our focus for all women of all age groups because they are much more effective at preventing a pregnancy. The contraceptive pill is an easy one for any doctor to prescribe but it is not an easy one for women to use and use reliably. And even if it is being used reliably, we can only expect it to prevent a pregnancy in 98 times out of 100. And if you don't want a pregnancy, 98 times out of 100 is not good enough. We want a lark where we are getting contraceptive efficacy almost 100% of the time. So we use um, the numbers of about 99.9% .9 effective Statistically, a lark is a more reliable contraceptive method than sterilisation. With that sort of context, do you want to give us just a, a bit of a, an understanding of, um, particularly in terms of intrauterine devices, so in mm -hmm. terms of larks, yeah. different products there, and then I guess even within the, the class of intrauterine devices, the, the, the various products with um, their pros and cons. So yeah. it'd be great to just get your thinking about when you would use which Each of one? those? Sure. So in terms of larks, we have the Implanon intermogestral rod that sits in the upper arm that lasts for three years and provides really good contraception. Uh, it can give some unpredictable bleeding in a small number of women, but is a great starting point, particularly for young women and women who maybe are not sexually active. That's an easy one to learn to insert and to do regularly in your practice and uh, is a great starting point. They cost about $30 for anyone, which is great uh, uh, financially effective, economically viable contraception for young women. When we look at intrauterine devices, we have two types. We have those containing a progesterone like levonorgestrel. So we have the Mirena, which lasts for five years and delivers a higher dose of progesterone. And now we have the Kylena which is a fractionally smaller device, again lasting five years, delivering a smaller dose of progesterone every day. And then we have the copper IUDs, which irritate the lining of the uterus and are equally effective at contraception. We have the multi-load, the T375 and the TT380. That last one will last for 10 years. The smaller IUDs containing 375 um, millimetres of copper will last for five years for contraception. The copper IUDs can also be used for emergency contraception if inserted within five days of unprotected sexual intercourse. So they are fantastic. For women who don't want any hormone, they can go for a copper IUD. For women who don't want any hormone, they might actually benefit from an intrauterine device containing progesterone because the progesterone is really only being delivered into the uterus. It's not going into the rest of the bloodstream. It is unlikely to impact on their mood or their weight. The fantastic thing with those progesterone delivering IUDs is that they are quickly reversible, like the copper IUDs. 
So if you try a progesterone containing IUD and don't like it, we can take it out and you go back to normal almost immediately. So in terms of IUDs, we've got the um, those impregnated with a levonorgestrel mm -hmm. um, and the copper IUDs. And um, in, in terms of choosing one or the other, am I hearing you sort of say that's kind of patient choice? Or is there, uh, how, how would you go about selecting? Yeah. Um, so the progesterone-containing IUDs cost about $42 each, which is very different to the copper IUDs, which we can access for around $100, which is still really cost-effective when they're used for five to 10 years. Unfortunately, a lot of pharmacies in our region don't stock the copper IUDs, and so the women who want a copper IUD might have to ask for it to be ordered in. So access is a little bit slower, but not inaccessible at all. The copper IUD, as I said, irritates the lining of the uterus, so it does increase the heaviness and the crampiness of the period. That might just be for the first few months. It might be for the lifetime of the copper IUD, but you wouldn't know unless you tried it. A lot of women who use copper IUDs are super happy with them. For the progesterone containing, the levonorgestrel containing IUDs, they thin the lining of the uterus, which tends to give women a much lighter, uh, shorter, less crampy period than they might experience any day of the week. So they are a fantastic option for women who need contraception. They are also a fantastic option for women who have an unmanageable period or a period that's interfering with their lives, which um, can be really variable. I have women all the time who tell me that changing two pads a day is unacceptable for them, and that's fine. I have women who are changing two pads every hour, which I think we can all agree is unacceptable. But it's down to the woman, whichever way she wants to manage her period, an IUD can be there to help. So in terms of the uh, progesterone-containing IUDs, it seems like there are two basic clinical indications um, that, that you could use this for. So one's contraception, the other uh, related to menorrhagia. Yes, that's right. Um, you might sort of start with sort of contraception and then maybe move to sort of menorrhagia. So I've got a 27-year-old sort of lady who's come to get a you know, a prescription for the pill. Um, she's got two children, doesn't want any children anytime soon. Um, part of my usual practice um, with uh, uh, a request for the oral contraceptive would be to do sexual health screen, um, obviously rule out contraindications, but I, I've been trying to get better at going, hey, have you ex explored other alternatives for, yeah. for sort of contraception? How do you have that conversation in terms of, um, making people aware of IUDs, um, the benefits, and then helping them weigh up the, the pros and cons. Yep, so for anyone who comes in, uh, regardless of their age or where they are in their family planning, I would talk about long-acting reversible contraceptives. We know that intrauterine devices, for example, are perfectly acceptable for nulliparous women, so women who've not yet had a baby, uh, and even I will insert them in women who have not become sexually active if that's the right contraceptive for them. So if someone comes in for contraceptive advice, I will actually just handwrite a list of all of the different classes of contraceptives available to them. Also talking about the cost, because that's important. Talking about patient input, because that's important. If you can't remember to brush your teeth every day, then you probably shouldn't be remembering to take a contraceptive pill every day. Um, we talk about whether or not people do shift work, whether or not 
they uh, have multiple sexual partners and then maybe shouldn't have an intrauterine device. We talk about other things that might be bothering them, like their weight or their mood, and help walk through the different options to work out what is going to be most acceptable for that woman. And so what I'm hearing you sort of say is, as part of the counselling, particularly, you know, um, not just for the larks, but particularly with the IUDs, um, a, a good se sexual health history would be sort of really sort of important as part of um, that consult. Mm, it's tricky, isn't it? It's yeah. hard to do that in a sensitive fashion without being um, too interested in the nitty gritty of someone's sex life. Yeah. But we do recognise that uh, women who are not looking after their sexual health are at high risk of contracting chlamydia and gonorrhea, which are both really prevalent in our community at the moment. If you pick up chlamydia or gonorrhea and you have no symptoms, then you might end up with tubal occlusion and primary infertility or secondary infertility, and that is devastating for those women. So in women who I'm talking about intrauterine devices with, I say to them, you know, it's incredibly important that we screen you for chlamydia, make sure you don't have an undiagnosed infection, and of course, use condoms with new partners. And that's a conversation I have with everybody when talking about contraception, regardless of their marital history or their occupation or however many children they have. That reminder that condoms are always important with new partners cannot be overstated. So in terms of, I guess, myself, uh, I won't be inserting sort of IUDs, mm. just I haven't had the training um, to do that. But I've, I've got a, a young lady in front of me and we, we're talking about sort of contraception. Um, I'd like your input, I guess, into, I guess, a potential approach for others listening um, who, who may not be in the position where they've had the training to insert IUDs. Um, so I guess the one thing at the back of my mind, if I'm going to refer someone for an IUD, this is the right form of contraception for them, is a potential of a gap uh, where they may not be covered uh, with contraception before from my consult to seeing you. No, yeah. never. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and some, uh, you know, some uh, patients, or a lot of patients, just need time to sort of think through the, the present concept, giving them information or printed information. Um, so my practice would be to give them the pill so they keep going, um, give them the referral. I'll often give them the script as well um, to, to perhaps... Uh, collect that and then come sort of see you, knowing that they won't have it inserted on the first consult. Do, do you have some things, or just in your experience, um, just nuancing that approach a little bit? What 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 would be the best way um, in approaching that sort of consult where where there's potentially a gap in yeah. contraceptive cover? So we don't ever want a gap in contraceptive cover. Even if women promise that they'll use condoms, I'm always a little bit nervous because condoms require two uh, dedicated partners to use condoms correctly. So we often prescribe what we call bridging contraception. So that might be using the contraceptive pill for a short time. You would want to start it on an active pill so that it's into their system as soon as possible. Um, or you could use a Depo-Provera injection, for example, or you could use uh, a NuvaRing if that was most appropriate or a progesterone only contraceptive pill. We um, always encourage people to use condoms as I said uh, but that bridging contraception is incredibly important. If someone is already using something like the contraceptive pill and has been using it for a long time don't ask them to stop their pill. I would always want them to continue with that contraceptive pill for seven days after the insertion of the IUD 
because a levonorgestrel progesterone-containing IUD will take seven days to become effective. We know that those, uh, those IUDs are effective straight away as contraception if they are inserted at the time of the period. As long as it's a true menstrual period, if someone's had a medical termination of pregnancy, for example, we're not 100% sure what recent bleeding might mean, whether they have had a true period and whether that IUD insertion is going to be effective straight away. And of course, if you send someone in for insertion of an IUD and something pops up in that history that we need to investigate a little bit further, or we think a different form of contraception might be nice for that woman, then we don't proceed with that IUD insertion. We might further delay that contraceptive commencement and have a need for further bridging contraception. So if someone's coming from outside, I would ideally like them to still be on active contraception. So when uh, women are coming into family planning clinic, for example, they don't need a referral because we are GPs who run that clinic. Women can self-refer and they don't need a paper referral from the hospital. Uh, and we will ask them to have a little bit of pain relief about half an hour before that appointment time to bring the device with them on the day, to bring a pad, and maybe particularly if they're young women who haven't had a pregnancy, we'd suggest they have a driver to take them home afterwards because they can be super crampy and maybe even feel a little bit faint. But for the vast majority of women, uh, even women who've only had caesarean section births, the difficulty or the discomfort with insertion is really short-lived. And I don't think people appreciate that adequately. You might be really uncomfortable for a minute or two, but women leave our rooms with some mild period pain and it can happily go back to work or go about their business. It's not perhaps as big a deal as some people might consider. That's awesome. That's mm. good to understand, I guess, the, the process from the family planning side so that, you know, I guess we can adequately plan um, That's for right. that. Would you, what would your approach be? Um, so let, let's assume this young lady's uh, had her IUD, comes back sort of five, six months later. Um, she's concerned that she's put on a little bit of weight. Um, she's concerned that uh, her moods have changed and it may be related to um, the progesterone. Um, uh, I'm assuming this is not an infrequent. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone <laughs> blames their contraception. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you approach that um, um, consult in the sense that I think a lot of us or hopefully know that, that that's fairly sort of rare and that, that this is working locally. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, patients do come with, it's in their mind that there was an event and there's this cause and effect relationship. How, how do you approach that? Yeah. So we actually see all of our patients six weeks after insertion to make sure that the bleeding's settling down, that there's no evidence of infection or expulsion of the IUD and that the unpredictable bleeding that you would normally get at the initiation of the progesterone-containing IUD has pretty much settled down. We know that for the first three months or so with a progesterone-containing IUD, you might get a higher dose of progesterone released, which might actually get into the systemic circulation. So could potentially make women feel a little bit bloated. Um, they might complain of headache, nostalgia, uh, their mood or they might be a bit more tearful than usual. Some of those PMT symptoms might be there in a mild uh, 
in a mild they you know some of those symptoms might be mild (laughs) um that's right but uh you know, I reassure people that if it is related to the IUD, but that that effect would be gone by the three-month mark. If we're at six months and women are concerned that their bodies are substantially changing, then an important thing to do is look at what contraception they have used previously. So if people have used a contraceptive pill, for example, that has really suppressed ovulation, when they have their IUD, they might notice more cyclical mood change as their ovary kicks back into gear. They might notice more um, ovulation pain at mid-cycle. They may not know where they are in their cycle because the marina has suppressed their period, but they might notice cyclical ovulation pain. Uh, They might notice that uh, they have gained a little bit of weight or their mood is a little bit poor because they've actually benefited from the contraceptive pill. Whereas now all we've done is not necessarily to introduce a marina, but we have removed their contraceptive pill that they had a lot of uh, benefit from aside from the contraceptive effect. We call those the beneficial side effects of the pill. They are substantial. That's really helpful for me in the sense that um, thinking through what a patient's presenting with, uh, you know, we lump these contraceptives under contraceptive uh, without thinking that there are different modes of action, there's there's actually substantial differences in physiology and how you're getting that contraceptive effect. But there are also other beneficial That's side right. effects to, benef- to these different forms. Yeah. And once again, this comes down to the counselling side of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But keeping our patients engaged is incredibly important. So we need to acknowledge that that patient has those symptoms that they're experiencing. They may not be the side effect of the marina. They may not be because we've withdrawn the contraceptive pill. But it's also important to ask about other things that are going on in their life. Have they recently had a baby? Have they recently returned to work? Uh, Have they commenced some other medications like an SSRI? So, uh, as I said, we can always remove the IUD and give them a period of time without the IUD to see if their symptoms improve. More often than not, I will also give them a prescription for another IUD at that same consult and say, look, I'll take out your IUD. If you find that things don't magically change without your IUD, then we can always pop another one in and you can, with your GP, explore causes for your other symptoms down the track. So what I'm hearing, the key point here is um, the patients come in thinking, you know, they're focused on the, the IUD. Uh, really important to take a biopsychosocial approach, not to have that anchoring bias where the patients come in, this is the problem, but rather sort of zoom out and, and do a thorough history examination for, for either biological causes yeah. for their symptoms, all while acknowledging that what they're experiencing is valid and reliable. I think sometimes the message we give, it's not your IUD, keep the IUD in sort of thing. That's the message I'm going through inside my head, head. but out of my mouth comes a much more compassionate approach, I would hope. And, of course, it's going to depend on how much sleep I've had the night before, how many patients (laughs) I have waiting in the waiting room, how hungry I am. Did I bother to eat lunch today? Probably not. So you're only as good at counselling your patients as you are at managing all of those other things in your workplace from day to day as well. We might sort of uh, finish off with just, you know, uh, one more sort of scenario around uh, sort of IUDs and then sort of summarise some of the key points. Um, so I, I guess the second scenario is a 45-year-old lady um, who uh, 
still requires sort of contraception, but in terms of your history, you've uncovered that their periods are getting heavier and longer, um, and, and it's actually impacting sort of life. Um, what would your approach be to um, that sort of scenario? Yeah, so it's incredibly important that we offer women at midlife contraception up until we are sure that they have passed through menopause. So women who have their last period before the age of 50, we need to provide them with contraception for two years, just in case they have an unexpected ovulation in that time. For women over the age of 50, we want to provide them with con contraception for at least 12 months after their final period. So if someone is using a contraceptive, like the pill, for example, then they are going to be having a reliable withdrawal bleed every month and we may not know when they are going to go through their last period. We might need to stop their contraception and ask them just to use condoms for a period of time so we can assess what's going on with menopause. So for most women at the age of 45, uh, the average age of menopause being 51 in this country, so women at 45 will not infrequently have a, a heavier period. That doesn't necessarily mean there's anything nasty going on. And we often use the NICE criteria to just establish whether or not we need to investigate that heavier bleeding more enthusiastically or not. For those women who have no concerning pathology on the radar at all, the ones who are not making the hairs on, your back of, on the back of your neck stand up, we would look at a contraceptive that's going to provide a reliable contraception, but also help to make their life a little bit easier with a lighter, less crampy, and maybe even shorter period. And that's really where the progesterone-containing IUDs come into their own. So when we are over the age of 45, we um, can provide women with a progesterone-containing contraception for what we use extended, what we term extended use. So we don't leave that IUD for five years. We actually leave it for seven years, as long as we've removed it by the age of 55. So anyone over the age of 45 would get their last IUD, their last progesterone-containing IUD, and that would be removed 12 months after we're sure they've passed through menopause. With a Marina or a Kylina, we can be sure they've gone through menopause just by measuring the FSH because that is not interfered with by that contraception. So if you have an elevated FSH in a patient, you would wait another 12 months uh, before removing her IUD. If that FSH is particularly high, like 80, then you don't need to repeat the level. If the FSH is only marginally elevated, you would repeat it six to 12 weeks later to be sure that it was still elevated and that that woman was in menopause. But it's important that we leave that contraception for 12 months after we suspect their last period so that we capture those women who might have an extra ovulation down the track. Awesome. Let's say in terms of our history, we're suspecting a fibroid uterus in this particular patient and we're able to sort of confirm that with further investigation. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about the role of IUDs in managing? Yeah. Um, so when IUDs first became more popular in Australia, it was a common misconception that women who'd only had caesareans uh, were uh, inappropriate for an IUD, that women who had a fibroid uterus were inappropriate for an IUD, that women who were nulliparous were inappropriate for an IUD. And we just know that that is not the case. So many women will have fibroids in their uterus. Many women will have small fibroids. 
a large fibroid might increase the risk of spontaneous expulsion of that IUD, but I will always suggest it to women as an option to try. All women who have an IUD would be encouraged to examine themselves for the string of the IUD to be sure that their IUD is in the correct place. If you or your partner can feel the string, then you are reassured that your IUD is in the right place providing contraception. If that IUD improves that woman's period substantially or insubstantially even, it's up to the woman to know whether that IUD is affecting her period adequately or not. So if uh, we try an IUD for six months and that woman finds her period is much improved, then we would leave that IUD. If we use that IUD and uh, the woman's period isn't very much changed or they are crampy or the IUD is pushed a bit low in the uterus, then we might say, okay, we've tried the marina, it's not going to work for you for your period and look at other options for that woman. I'll always give Marina a go. So just to summarise um, the discussion today, some of the take-home points um, that I've taken, and feel free to add uh, any, um, in terms of your long-acting re reversible contraceptives, I heard you say that they're more effective than sterilisation. So very effective form That's of contraception. Right. Yep. Second thing is they're appropriate for uh, any woman, basically of any age or previous obstetrical gynaecological history, um, there are some contraindications, obviously, to, to it, um, but in terms of when they initially were introduced, there were ladies excluded um, that would no longer be excluded. So the IUD can be considered That's right. for anyone wishing uh, to use it as a form of contraception. Definitely. Um, in terms of your copper IUDs versus your uh, progesterone-impregnated um, IUDs, the, the marine and the carlina, Yes. are the most available and accessible to, to ladies here in Makaya. That's right. They're the ones that we have in Australia uh, and all pharmacies will stock them. They are a similar cost. They are really cost effective for women of all ages and really have made an enormous impact on women's quality of life. In terms of uh, good medical care around um, advice around contraception um, or providing sort of options, yeah, like my takeaway from this is always to take a, a good biopsychosocial approach to these conversations. There are lots of factors that come into determining an appropriate form of, sort of contraception or beneficial side effects from different forms of contraception. Um, and, and once again, just, uh, I guess, good communication skills when counselling prior to, you know, insertion of an IUD, but also the follow-up down the track where, where a patient may come in and go, I think it might be my ID causing these symptoms, just taking a really sort of thorough history and examination um, uh, and balancing the, the signs at the back of your head going, yeah, unlikely, but let's, yeah. let's explore this a bit further. That's right. So, of course, the pelvis is um, a complex anatomical area. It's easy to write off a woman's pelvic discomfort or symptoms as related to an IUD. Often women are also constipated or might have an appendix that's playing up or suffer with irritable bowel syndrome. There are lots of other things going on. Whilst you might have an IUD in place, that is not the axis of evil. There are other things at play always. Yeah. So once again, thorough history, examination, investigation, um, don't, don't, don't let your anchoring bias 
necessarily get in the way. That's yeah. right. And at the end of the day, we just need to do what is best for that particular that patient. Any final thoughts? If, if there was one take home that uh, the listeners today needed to, to take home from this, what would it be? Use condoms. <laughs> um, and remember an IUD for all of your female patients. They can be really helpful. We're so lucky in Mackay to have an easy access pathway for women. But of course, they can always see one of the gynecologists, either publicly or privately. And there are lots of GPs in town who are trained to do IUDs. You need to be doing them frequently uh, to be proficient and I would encourage every doctor to consider IEDs in their counselling of their patients. Fantastic. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you for your time um, and hope to catch up with the next topic uh, sometime soon. Thanks, Stephen. For more information about the Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs, or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, health services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.